It's now my great pleasure uh, to introduce um, the person you, for whose talk you all have come for this evening, Professor Miles Taylor. To most of you, Professor Taylor does not need any introduction because over the past six years he was seconded from York University to the University of London to serve as the director of the Institute of Historical Research. And most of you will also know that these last years were quite a remarkable period of modernization for the IHR. First of all, the entire premises of the IHR in Senate House had to be refurbished. The Institute had to move out for several years and could only just recently, uh, two months ago, uh, move back and open its uh, new premises. It's now an absolutely wonderful institute, a remarkable mixture of old and new. This was a fantastic uh, logistical achievement, uh, but also, I think, a masterpiece of tough negotiations with the university. All in all, I had the impression that the historians did not badly out of this uh, whole uh, period of disruption. Thank you very much. Uh, we all profit from it as well. The Institute of Historical Research is part of the University of London, but it has a national function, and it is really impressive how the services of the IHR's office and the initiatives they, uh, that were started in the past years uh, moved ahead. Under my directorship, the IHR really fully entered into the digital age, and it is really well worth looking at the impressive new website and all the things the IHR has to offer. However, first of all, Professor Taylor is, of course, a leading scholar of 19th century British history. He started his distinguished academic career with a PhD in Cambridge on a much-neglected decade in British history, the 1850s. That is the period after the disappointment of the Chartist movement in 48 and the rise of new liberalism in the 1860s. It is interesting that this uh, post-revolutionary period has also been neglected for a long time in Germany. It's also the times after the revolutions uh, are very often not so interesting for historians. Uh, Professor Taylor's focus is in particular on the role of the reformed parliament and the influence um, the transforming radicalism was able to exercise within this framework and how it also filtered into uh, the reform wing of the emerging Liberal Party. The much acclaimed book was published with Oxford University Press in 1995. Professor Taylor's next book was a biographical study of the British Chartist Ernest Jones, who, in fact, was born in Germany in a village called Berlin. Uh, it's not Berlin in Brandenburg, it's Berlin in Schleswig-Holstein, and I think it has, even today, not very much more than five or 600 inhabitants. He was born as the son of a British military in the services of the Duke of Cumberland, the later king in Hanover, and the family returned to Britain in 1838, where um, Ernest started a legal career, but uh, first of all, a political career as a prominent adherent of the physical force wing of the Chartist movement. After imprisonment, he returned to his legal practices, but started a second career as a fairly, I hate to say, slightly pompous romantic uh, poet. And uh, Miles Taylor's biography really wonderfully deflates Jones's slightly self-important image policy as uh, 
a left-wing poet and a fairly unsuccessful contender for a parliamentary seat. With these books, Miles Taylor has laid the ground for his wide-ranging interest in 19th century parliamentary history, in the history uh, of Britain, political cultural history of the Victorian age, which also includes important articles on the impact of the empire on Victorian politics and culture. He's the editor of the European Diaries of Richard Cobden and sole and co-editor of about 10 other books, such as The Victorian Empire and Britain's Maritime World, The Sea and Global History, 1837-1901, which was edited in 2013 with Palgrave Macmillan, or in this year, The Age of Asa, Lord Briggs' Public Life and History in Britain since 1945. These two volumes, these new ones, also show his particular interest in the history of British historiography, another field of his research to which he has contributed really important publications. I will leave it at that short characteristic. After six years in London, Professor Taylor will now return to his chair as Professor of Modern History at York, or already has returned. However, he will do this with a Leverhulme Trust Major Research Award 2014 to 2016, which will give him the space to complete a major study on British parliamentarianism, uh, the sovereign people, parliament, and representation in Britain since 1750. For this evening's lecture, Professor Taylor has chosen a topic which cuts across, I think, several of his fields of interest and expertise. He will talk to us on empire and the turn to collectivism in British social policy, 1860 to 1914. Thank you very much for coming, talking to us, and over to you, Miles. And as always, after the lecture, there will be question for, uh, time for questions and answers. So there have been so many apologies for absence this evening, I thought I'd better pinch myself and make sure that I'm here, but in fact, in fact I am here. So it's um, a very great pleasure to be here to give this lecture, and thank you to Andreas as director uh, and to the German Historical Institute in London for inviting me uh, for this occasion to speak on a topic which I feel is very close to the heart of one of your former directors, Wolfgang Mommsen whose two edited collections, 1981, uh, Emergence of the Welfare State in Britain and Germany, and 1986, Imperialism and After, co-edited with Jorgen Osterhammel, uh, are striking in how they think about empire. Uh, comparatively, uh, uh, across these two, in the case of the first book, uh, examples of developing welfare regimes, uh, but also how they think about the political culture uh, of imperialism, eschewing a narrow study of economics for thinking more widely about the institutions and the political parties that are involved in imperialism. My topic and indeed my title today are also inspired by another great German historian, uh, Hans Ulrich Wehler, who passed away earlier this year. Uh, for people of my generation, his work on Bismarck's imperialism, uh, his concept of Samlung's politic, was the kind of very bold approach to political history, bold conceptual uh, arguments, which uh, is often lacking, is often missing in the British 
uh, political historiographical tradition. And from both those scholars, I've learned uh, a great deal uh, in English, I hasten to add, since my reading German is not great. The second thing I just wanted to say is that this lecture is very much work uh, in progress, as Andreas has nicely essayed. I am returning to full-time scholarship after a bit of absence and picking up on themes and ideas and research that has been sitting there waiting for me. It's full of claims, it's full of polemics, which will be ironed out in the final published version, I promise, but I hope your questions will help that uh, process uh, when I uh, finish. So, in 1898, in a series of lectures on the relationship between law and public opinion delivered at Harvard, Albert Dicey famously described the changing basis of English laws. Since 1865, Dicey argued the principles of individualism and laissez-faire had given way to the new ideas of collectivism. From the first Irish Land Act of 1870 through to the Working Class Housing Act of 1885, English law, Dicey said, had moved from its traditional emphasis on the freedom of contract between individuals and instead given greater power to municipal and central authorities to intervene in the market and in industrial relations. By the time Dicey revised his lectures for publication in 1905, on the eve of the election landslide which put the reforming Liberal, Liberal Party into government, the turn to collectivism appeared to have become irreversible. To his list, which was already quite long, he now added the 1904 Pensions Bill and the 1905 Aliens Act, the first legislation, you will recall, to control immigration to Britain. Dicey was particularly critical of the Aliens Act because, he noted, versions of the same legislation were also being applied in the new Commonwealth of Australia. Collectivism at home, Dicey thought, was extending its influence into the overseas empire as well. Now, nowadays, historians are unpersuaded by Dicey's alarm and anxiety, and indeed his book, Lectures on the Relationship Between Law and Public Opinion, is, is not seen as one of his greatest works. Whilst recognising the political significance of the welfare reforms of the Liberal governments of 1906, 1914, and indeed of the preceding Conservative administrations under Salisbury and Balfour, historians nonetheless have stressed continuity over change in early 20th century British social policy. Since the 1980s, the historiography of the coming of the welfare state to Britain has emphasised the persistence of Victorian values of self-help and individualism, and indeed of popular suspicion of a centralising <coughs> state. That historiography has also documented the reliance on voluntary societies, friendly societies, and commercial companies in the administration of policies such as old age pensions and national insurance. The British road to a welfare state now looks like a very long one without a clear ideological direction, <coughs> direction of the kind identified by Dicey, and it was a road which required two world wars interceded by the experience of economic depression to reach its destination. However, Dicey's polemic is worth dwelling on for two reasons. 
First, his intention was never to say that the collectivist state had arrived. Rather, his was a warning, a warning that changes in statute law and their interpretation by the courts would, with the passage of time, reshape public opinion in England. The series of laws singled out for criticism by Dicey gave new or extended powers to the state in the shape of compulsory purchase of land, the regulation of local living and working environments, the provision of funds or loans underwritten by the state for public works. These new laws, what Dicey, echoing Disraeli in 1893, mischievously called a leap in the dark, or the new constitution, also gave the protection of the courts to organised labour. And just as the creed of individualism, which of course he sets up in opposition to collectivism, championed since the 1770s by Adam Smith and latterly Jeremy Bentham, just as that creed had become accepted public wisdom by the 1830s, so too uh, the principles of collectivism, gaining ground by stealth in the late 19th century, might become the common sense of the next generation. This was Disraeli, this was Dicey's main point, where the law led, the public was sure to follow classic vanity and conceit of a lawyer. Secondly, Dicey is worth bearing with because his warning was not confined to the domestic remit of English laws. His catalogue of collectivist statutes, you will remember, starts in Ireland and ends in the white settlement colonies. No borders, continents or seas separated the transmission of the principles of collectivism for the English common law remained the basis of most colonial legal systems and until the Statute of Westminster of 1931, the legislation of the English Parliament was binding in the colonies and the dominions unless otherwise stated. That's an important and consequential caveat, the otherwise stated, but it's a caveat all the same. So collectivism uh, might indeed be exported. Now, in my lecture today, I want to connect these two themes which are hinted at by Disraeli, by Dicey, sorry. That is to say, how the trends towards state interventionism in the colonial empire after 1860 had implications for discussions about changes in welfare policy at home in Britain. My focus will not uh, be going where you might expect, on the white settlement colonies, Canada, the Australian states pre- and post-Confederation, or New Zealand, all of which by 1906 had become a laboratory for social reform as they experimented with workers' insurance, with superannuation schemes and maternity care. Nor will I be discussing the phenomenon of national efficiency or imperial citizenship, that pervasive mood of popular imperialism and Britishness which swept through the press, pressure groups and political classes both in Britain and in the white colonies in the aftermath of the South African War of 1899 to 1902. Both these aspects of the history of empire and social policy are already well covered uh, in the literature. Rather, I want to do something different. I want to look at the older colonies of the West Indies, of India and at Ireland, where from the 1850s onwards, as I will show, and for different reasons in each case, central imperial authorities 
responded to crisis by assuming a greater role in the management and the planning of the local colonial economy. Post-emancipation West Indies, post-famine Ireland, and post-mutiny India all saw levels of unprecedented British state intervention. And the consequences of this new policy, I will argue, were the subject of much debate back in Britain, just as collectivism began to be discussed in the 1880s and the 1890s. Lessons, largely negative lessons, learned from the colonial periphery became applied to some of the new legislation after 1900. But before turning to that, which is my main theme and which takes up the second and third part of my lecture this evening, and looking at that interconnectedness between colonial economies and the metropole on the eve of liberal welfare reforms, I do want to say something more general about the wider political culture of later Victorian Britain. I've been wanting to say it for quite some time, since Bernard Porter published his Absent-Minded Imperialists, and I never got around to finishing the review that I wrote of it. My point is that since the publication of Porter's Absent-Minded Imperialists ten years ago now, historians have been very wary of making larger claims about the influence of empire on British society and politics, particularly in the last third of the 19th century and the decade and a half before the First World War. It's true that there has been, in the last ten years, an abundance of scholarship on imperial culture. We only have to look at the work of the new imperial history, which has been championed in particular by Cambridge University Press, or the Manchester University Press Studies in Imperialism series, edited originally by John Mackenzie and now by Andrew Thompson, which is past the 100 mark in terms of the number of individual monographs and edited collections published. Or we have the British Scholar Platform, led by Roger Lewis uh, in, in Texas and sometimes in Washington, and also the successive British World Conferences. There's been no absence, no shortage of study of empire uh, and British society. But much of this work is deliberately de-centred, in other words away from metropolitan Britain, looking at connections and networks across and between the countries of the empire without considering the dimensions of the imperial state at home. And that's what I want to turn to in the first of section of my lecture. So a good place to start in recovering the imperial character of British political culture in the late 19th and early 20th century is by looking at some of the principal personalities involved in social reform. Starting in the 1880s, revelations about urban and rural poverty and the plight of unskilled workers in Britain inspired a generation of social investigators, journalists, politicians and civil servants. New political formations such as the Social Democratic Federation of 1881 and the Fabian Society of 1884 were one manifestation of this new mood. Toynbee Hall and the Oxford-led university settlement movement, movement in London's East End was another. The governments of the day, later 1880s, 1890s, also became involved as civil servants, especially at the Board of Education, the Board of Trade, and at the Home Office, commissioned inquiries and sought 
recommendations on a whole range of issues uh, affecting welfare. In other words, much of the groundwork for the liberal legislation that comes after 1906 was laid in the last two decades of the 19th century. All this is well known. What is less appreciated is just how many of those involved in these social reform circles came from what can be loosely called, to stretch my former colleague Liz Butner's term, empire families. We are familiar with some of these names of these empire families and their circumstances. For example, the Indian background of William Beveridge. We know a lot about and indeed the Beveridge family are one of the case studies of Professor Butner's book. And we know about uh, the Collett family in, in uh, India. Uh, Clara Dobson Collett, notable reformer of women's education and clerical work, came from another great uh, Anglo-Indian family with strong connections to the Raj. But scratch a little deeper, and imperial connections start erupting everywhere. And I mean everywhere. Take some of the main voices in the investigation of urban poverty and working conditions. Let's take Charles Booth, why not? Coordinator of the Monumental Survey of London, who made his shipping fortune out of the Brazilian rubber boom of the 1870s. The very same industry which, amidst accusations of slavery in the Amazon, would be the subject of extensive British government investigation three decades later. Or let's take the Roundtree family in York, brothers Joseph, author of the hugely influential Poverty, A Town Life of 1899, Joshua, the radical liberal MP, and John Wilhelm, Quaker organiser and activist. The Roundtree confectionery firm had cocoa plantations in Jamaica and Trinidad. Or let's take Beatrice Webb, uh, nay Potter, one half of the famous marriage which was the backbone of the Fabian Society and of the foundation of the London School of Economics. Her father's first fortune from the English uh, railway boom of the 1840s was lost in the crash of 1847, but he regained it, investing in the Canadian intercolonial railways of the late 1860s. West Indian slavery also lay behind two other notable reformers, both parents of Henry Mayers Hindman, the founder of the Social Democratic Federation, were from slave-owning families, and Annie Besant, Fabian, an outspoken defender of the unskilled at the time of the unemployed demonstrations in London in the late 1880s, and also in the Match Girls' strike, grew up in the home of Ellen Marriott, sister of the noted novelist, and daughter of another West Indian plantation-owning family. Similarly, Samuel Barnett, the first warden of Tornby Hall, was descended on his mother's side from a Bristol family, the Gilmores, whose fortune was made in West Indian shipping, although according to family testimony, they refused to transport African slaves, but that does suggest they transported the goods produced by, uh, and raw materials produced by the slaves. Now, this is not an exercise in naming an outing, although it, it, it is quite fun once you, once you get going and, and you dig. And it it's, it's, has to be said that the wonderful database now produced by the Legacies of British Slavery Project at, at University College London, Catherine uh, Hall and uh, Richard Draper and Keith McClelland and colleagues, uh, makes some of this investigation much easier. My point is that in registering these connections, 
we can better understand how social reformers of the period were products of empire in a way in which earlier and even later cohorts of reformers were simply not. You, you would not get that same uh, 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 set of connections, I think, if you were to look at a, uh, a cohort in the first half of the 19th century or indeed uh, after 1920. And there are also two wider points to observe. First, the one is that wealth derived from colonial sources provided the financial independence which made possible philanthropic investigation or political activity. For example, Beatrice Webb's inheritance in 1891 from her father's Canadian railway investments meant that her husband, Sidney, could leave his full-time employment in the colonial office, which I will come back to shortly. Uh, the Caribbean estates of the Roundtree family helped secure the company's competitiveness at a particularly crucial moment in the 1890s and coincided with the public flotation and share issue of the company. This upturn in Roundtree finances freed Joseph, John and Joshua from the management of the company, giving them the leisure to pursue their other vocations. Now, of course, this was a classic route for middle-class philanthropy in Victorian Britain and indeed for middle-class political activity of any kind, the need to secure a competency, as the Victorians wonderfully called it, to allow public political life to take place without worrying about money. We know what politicians do now when they are worrying about money. But increasingly in the late 19th century, and this is my point, it is the colonies rather than domestic manufacturing or banking which provided the means of that independence. Perhaps the most notorious example of this pattern was Hindman, founder of the SDF, whose £21,000 inheritance from his family's West Indian fortune, that's around a million pounds at today's prices, released him from a career in journalism. And without it, he would not have had the the time or the means to pursue his not uninfluential career of the 1880s. My second observation, having trawled through some of these personalities' histories and biographies, is that entry into social reform politics in England, in some cases, came after exposure to deprivation and distress in the empire. There are several good examples of this. Take John Burns, hero of the new unionism of the 1880s and later president of the local government board in the Liberal administration. He started his career working for two years in the service of the United African Company, which was exploiting the opportunities for trading in the Niger Delta on the west coast of Africa following the British annexation of Lagos. Appalled by the conditions and treatments of the people's he found on the Niger, Burns learned, he later claimed, early lessons in, 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 in the inhumanity of uh, 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 colonial and imperial trade. Or Hinman, again, he cut his journalistic teeth reporting in the Pall Mall Gazette in the 1870s on the Indian famines. Or Annie Besant, Besant again, whose conversion to theosophy, a version inspired by Hinduism, and whose pamphleteering about India, particularly on the famines of the late 1870s, came some years before she joined the Fabians. Or H. Ryder Haggard, best-selling author, chronicler of rural poverty in Norfolk, whose ideas on small landholdings were forged during his days in colonial service in the late 1870s in Natal 
and the Transvaal in southern Africa. And so on. I think if you look at that particular group of social reformers, there's some very interesting connections that can be observed. A second way to penetrate the imperial character of the late, of late 19th century political culture is to turn to some of the civil servants and government ministers involved in the moves that begin to take place to a more interventionist social reform. And again, we can see hitherto hidden or not brought to the surface colonial uh, connections. If we look at some of the civil servants, for example, I've already alluded to Sidney Webb, who joined the colonial office having successfully sat the civil service examination in 1881, joined department number three, where his particular responsibilities were for West Africa uh, and Mauritius, uh, St. Helena, probably not a lot going on there, and, and Malta. Um, and this wasn't a mere interlude right, while he found something else to do. He was 10 years at the colonial office during one of the busiest times in the work of that department. Let us take, for example, Robert Morant, whose researches and inquiries into educational provision in Britain in the 18, later 1890s, and then his own work uh, as the principal civil servant at the Board of Education are absolutely fundamental in the passage of the 1902 Education Act, the first uh, act, really, to make national provision for primary education in this, in this country. Morant, as some of you will know, had been private tutor to the Prince of Siam and had been charged with overhauling the education system of what was a particularly modernizing period of, modernizing period of, of, of the history of uh, Thailand. We can also look across to some of the principal ministers involved in welfare reform in the 1890s and 1900s and pick up on a few more uh, colonial connections as well. For example, Lord Carrington, who uh, becomes president of the Board of Agriculture in the Liberal administration of 1906 to 1914 and is instrumental in the passage of a series of important pieces of rural legislation, the Allotments Act, the Small Landholdings Act. He had been governor of New South Wales in the later 1880s and presided over a particularly busy period of social reform and interventionist legislation there. And one can go on. Herbert Samuel, the son of Montague and Samuel, the bankers who make their fortune out of the Australian gold rush in the 1850s. Charles Ritchie at the Board of Trade makes his fortune, the family make their fortune out of the Dundee India jute trade. Uh, this is not to make claims of a Marxist or Lewis Namier kind in, in a conspiratorial fashion to say that if you scratch at the surface, lo and behold, you will find these, these connections. I think I'm making two points in particular. One, there wouldn't have been a moment which generates so much interest and investigations and information about social reform without the relative independence of wealth that some of these colonial fortunes uh, create. And I think the other point that is worth making about a lot of this group is that it is a particularly well-traveled generation. In the years after the end of the American Civil War, so many of these, and you can give at least half a dozen examples of the people I've been talking about, embark on what we would now call world tours. And the trailblazer of, is, of course, Charles Dilke, with his book Greater, Greater Britain, uh, written after a, a two-year tour and published in 1868 and a bestseller 
But a lot of the other people I've just been discussing made similar sorts of, similar sorts of tours. I think a final way to look at some of the imperial character of late 19th century political culture is to take in what is happening in Parliament in particular and just to briefly say that what, can observe, what one can observe is the beginning of something like a, a colonial lobby. Um, colonial lobbies had been prominent in Parliament in the 18th century and down to the first Reform Act of 1832. A lot of them lose their seats as the nomination boroughs are, are swept away. But what one can find increasingly in the 1880s and 1890s is returning colonial servants standing for election. Some good examples would include George Baden Powell, the younger brother of the more famous founder of the Boy Scouts movement and uh, uh, major in the First World War, who has a colonial service career that takes him through the West Indies, Australia and New Zealand, uh, and then becomes MP for Liverpool to his death and to his death in the 1880s. He's a free trader, he's a unionist, uh, and he is very supportive of attempts to revive the Caribbean economies, which I will come to talk about in a minute. Or one could take any one of a handful or so of Indian administrators, such as Richard Temple, who returns to Britain after a long career in Indian service and becomes an MP, or Lewis Pelly, another, another good example. So I think we're looking at a particular, a particular generation of civil servants, of reformers, of politicians in the late 19th century. And that really is the basis for thinking about some of the interconnectedness between their experiences, their background in empire, and the kind of social legislation that is beginning to be considered and eventually passed. Now, let me get back to my main theme, which is to look at the interconnectedness of, two, of three areas of Britain's colonial empire uh, after 1860 or so, and new ideas about state intervention back in Britain. And it really means looking at a contrast between the small state, the minimalist state of the era of Gladstone and Disraeli, and the growing prominence that the colonial state is taking in the three examples that I will be going through. For the England of Gladstone and Disraeli, the 1860s and the 1870s, was very much the era of the minimalist state. Low income tax, a penny in the pound, that's half a p, old money. Um, Gladstone's first chancellorship, late 1850s, 1860s, saw, out, saw off the last remaining taxes on consumption. This was the heyday of permissive legislation, whereby social policy was set by the national government, but it was left to local councils to implement it, and many councils were reluctant to set municipal rates and pass on to ratepayers the costs of public health and social improvement, so very little tended to happen. There were major public health scares, such as contagious diseases, the cattle plague, concerns about vaccination, but these are really the exceptions and not the rule. The central state reluctant to pass any kind of mandatory legislation which was binding on authorities. Only the prison service was a centrally administered department after 1877, and the largest branch of civilian government famously was the 
the post office, which operated more as a, as a commercial service than a bureaucracy. By the close of the 19th century, this picture begins to change in Britain, of course, the pressure on municipal finances, expansion of uh, transport, tramways, the pressure on poor relief, the new educational responsibilities on local authorities after 1902. But it's true to say, looking at the literature, that the maxims of small government remained. If we look into the empire, we can see that the position is rather different. Mid-Victorian Britain presents a sharp contrast between a lightly governed metropole and a colonial periphery where government growth was particularly marked from the 1850s onwards. Not so much in the white settlement colonies, but particularly in post-mutiny India, post-famine Ireland, and in the emancipated islands of the West Indies. In each of these parts of the empire, the colonial authorities responded to various political and economic crises of the mid-19th century by encouraging investment in infrastructure, managing labour supply, and supporting public works on a scale unimaginable back in Britain. It's a coordinated policy, largely to appease uh, discontent by applying measures of relief and improvement. Let's look at each of these uh, areas, each of these parts of the empire, in a little more detail, starting with the West Indies. The West Indies, by the mid-19th century, was affected by the failure of the apprenticeship system, which is the system of managed labour which replaces slavery after uh, 1833, and required constant injections of British imperial funding to help the economy, and also extra funding to begin immigration of labour from other parts of the empire, principally India. This is the phenomenon of indentured uh, labour, the, the movement out of poorer parts of India of uh, 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 tens of thousands of labourers into other parts of the British imperial economy. By the 1880s, between 10 and 20% of annual expenditure, especially in Jamaica, one of the largest islands, was devoted to funding the repayments on the debts taken, uh, coming from the loans which had been taken out to A, help the economy in the 1850s, and B, to uh, pay for uh, the immigration of indentured labour. At the same time, the West Indian economies remained liable for the historical debts of plantation owners. That is to say that anyone who wanted to buy up an estate in the West Indies uh, had to take on the outstanding debts on on the property. And this, of course, was a great... Disincentive for new capital investment in the island economies. These imperial charges on the West Indian economy meant that reliable revenue sources had to remain, hence, the persistence of indirect taxation, import duties, particularly on foodstuffs, not being kept to protect new infant industries, but simply for a constant stream of revenue. This, in a nutshell, is some of the problems of the uh, public finances of the Caribbean economies by the 1880s. The Royal Commission of 1884 confidently predicted that all debts would be redeemed by the end of the century, but by 1899 the position had become critical again, not least because of further waves of indentured labour. Ireland, the second case study, is a classic case of 
a very different kind of state nestling alongside a lightly governed British mainland. It's well known that Ireland almost represents a gendarme state in the 19th century with the police omnipresent and an extensive network of army barracks. As Peter Gray and others have shown, that also applies to some of the civil government of Ireland as well. For example, the poor law system operated very differently in Ireland from the rest of the British mainland. It was less of a last resort, which it had become in England, and increasingly uh, was the mainstay of welfare provision. Under the terms of the Public Health Acts of 1874 and 1878, the poor law authorities in Ireland were responsible for a huge range of social measures, public vaccination, uh, water provision, street cleanliness, uh, and, and sewage. Jamaica, like Jamaica, Ireland also presented a similar case of an economy doubly burdened by what the Victorians euphemistically called the legacy of former days. Uh, in other words, still paying off the debts of former landowners uh, in Ireland, particularly through the operation of the encumbered estates legislation. In Ireland, public works were seen as the great panacea for kick-starting the economy, bridges, roads, public buildings, but they were, pub- they were funded from loans, the interest on which was guaranteed by the imperial treasury. By the 1880s, there were widespread complaints from both sides of the debate over the future of Ireland that the country was falling behind in its remittances to cover the debt and interest on the loans and could not afford repayment, the outstanding portion of which, outstanding portion of the capital, which was running as high in some years as 30%. So in home rule debates in the 1880s and the 1890s, the costs and consequences of public finance loomed large in relation to Ireland. Those who supported home rule, saying that Ireland needed to be freed from its historic burdens of debt, and those who were against home rule pointed out that Ireland, uh, the Irish people per capita benefited disproportionately from the imperial exchequer, and without that support, the country would face ruin. My third example uh, of a colonial economy which presents a very different model of public investment from what is happening back in Britain is, is India. Again, uh, a, a post-crisis situation in the years uh, after the Indian mutiny of 1857 to 1858, the British uh, government in India underwrote most of the public improvements to infrastructure which take place across the Indian subcontinent in the 1860s and the 1870s, principally railways, where the government of India guaranteed artificially high rates of interest to anyone who invested in railways there, but also similar funding arrangements applied to the construction of docks, bridges, uh, other public buildings, for example, the major rebuilding of parts of the city of Bombay in the 1870s. On top of that, in the Indian case, came the sort of loan finance which was required to deal with the recurrent famines uh, in India, particularly in the 1870s and then again in the the 1890s. There's a marked change in British policy towards Indian famines between the first famines in in Bihar and Orissa in the 1860s and the, the kind of intervention that takes place 
in, in, uh, in the Punjab, in uh, Western and in uh, Madras uh, states of India in the 1870s and the 1890s, where public granaries uh, set up, where there is a great deal of interference in the price uh, mechanism and long-term planning is made for uh, proper emergency provision. All of this comes in a cost, at a cost, and separate loans, again, underwritten by the government of India, are made from the imperial uh, treasury to support that policy. Now, about those three case studies of colonial economies in trouble, particularly in relation to their public finances, I want to make three more general points. The distress of the 1880s and the 1890s, widely commented on at home in Britain, is also reported on across the uh, empire. Famine conditions seem to be reappearing in Ireland between 1879 and 1881. It's interesting to note how many of the personnel involved in welfare reform uh, later in Britain uh, actually uh, are first-hand witnesses or involved in some of the relief measures to deal with Irish distress in the early 1880s. For example, George Shaw Lefebvre, uh, later at the um, uh, local government board, uh, or Sidney Buxton, later at the Board of Trade. Irish distress, which rears its head again, as I say, in the early 1880s, is also widely reported across Britain's colonies. The principal source of relief for the distress comes from Canada, from where 100,000 Canadian dollars is sent in 1880. Famine also recurs, as I've said, in India in the late 1870s, uh, principally in, in Madras, and then later in Western India in the 1890s, and is widely reported and commented and described in the British press, quite unlike the low level of coverage that happens in the 1860s. And finally, in the West Indies, the collapse of the uh, eventual collapse of the sugar economy of the sugar industries in the face of foreign competition, particularly from the rising sugar beet industries of, 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 of Europe um, uh, behind protectionist barriers, leads to a great deal of uh, commentary and investigation both in the Caribbean and, in, and back in Britain. And one very good example of this is, is a collection of documents put together in a pamphlet published in 1898 the bitter cry of the West Indies, deliberately borrowing that very potent title of the bitter cry of outcast London, published in the previous uh, decade. So my point is that the kind of concern about poverty and unskilled labour in Britain in the 1880s is at this time being paralleled by a lot of commentary about similar developments in those three colonial economies. The second point to make is that the concern about the colonial economies in the 1880s coincides especially in Ireland and in India with the growth of nationalism and separatism. The Indian National Congress formed in 1885 in India, the uh, Parnell-led uh, Irish Nationalist Party supporting land reform uh, in, in Ireland, uh, leads to a situation, I think, well described by Salisbury's policy of killing Irish home rule by kindness, where imperial management of these economies is very much uh, continued to try and placate rising demands from uh, nationalist groups. 
And I think the third point I want to make, and it leads me into the final section of my lecture, is that much of the discussion about poverty and economic depression and the consequences of famine in these three case studies begins to concentrate on the problem of public works and loans funding, and particularly on a debate about what is called remunerative finance versus reproductive finance, the extent to which lending money based on the public credit, the credit of the, of the, of, of, of the imperial treasury, can either uh, pay off um, expenditure that has already been made or in, indeed can lead to uh, infrastructural investment which is going to yield new jobs uh, and uh, greater productivity. It's a very uh, drawn-out debate in the case of these colonial economies through the 1880s and the 1890s. Um, and it has no real uh, outcome or particular solution because those economies are not strong enough to think about alternative means of public finance. Let me turn in my final third section to saying something, and this is where most of my work still needs to be done, on the implications for state intervention back in Britain, and in particular its finance, the implications from the kind of parlous situations that I've been describing in the colonial economies. In the first place, by looking at what has been happening in the, uh, in the West Indies and in Ireland and in India in the 1880s and the 1890s, I think we've got a wider, a wider set of um, references for, for thinking about the rejection of some of the public finance models for supporting social legislation in Britain. The uh, failure of, uh, in particular in Ireland and in the West Indies, of public finance based on import duties, based on indirect taxation, to support social improvement and also support um, paying off of, of loans, I think contributes to the rejection of the tariff reform alternative, which is being proposed by Joseph Chamberlain and various other um, uh, uh, groups at the turn of the century back in Britain. So it's not just uh, the unpopularity of taxes on food uh, and also of the reluctance of uh, the white settlement colonies to get involved in a system of imperial preference, but I think it is, it is the very weakness of a model which relies so heavily on indirect taxation to sustain long-term uh, investment in the economy. I think the other way in which we can see these debates about colonial public finance affecting discussions back in Britain is the rejection of wider models, wider programmes of public works funded by uh, loans underwritten by the British Treasury back in Britain itself. Uh, there's a growing move towards public works through the 1880s and the 1890s as not just a short-term solution to unemployment, but actually something which can really make the overburdened municipal uh, expenditure uh, be more sustained. And certainly when John Burns is at the local government board uh, in, in the Liberal government after 1906, he works very hard to get through the Public Works Loans Act, but is met with a lot of resistance from the Treasury and I think some of the reasons for that lie in the uh, difficulties that public works and the loans used to support them have, uh, um, 
have uh, created in the colonial economies that I've been describing. I think a second way in which we can see linkages and lessons learned from these problems in the colonial economies is by looking at the management of labour. Much of what goes on between India and the Caribbean uh, in the 1860s and afterwards with the movement of large groups of workers from one economy to the other uh, is also considered on a much smaller scale in Britain in the 1890s in the shape of labour colonies, which are supported in particular uh, by um, George Lansbury, one of the the, uh, labour leaders. That quickly gets rejected uh, in discussions after 1906, and the preference becomes for labour exchanges, where employers and workers are put in touch and knowledge is shared about unemployment and about, um, uh, about vacancies. And I think, again, that is a logical consequence of some of the concerns that arise in the imperial economies about the forced movement of labour, which, of course, right at the time of the election of the Liberals in 1906 has become a very pressing political concern because of the concern over Chinese coolies and the forced migration of Chinese labour within the empire. And I think the third linkage that one can see, and it is quite a complicated one but it is worth bearing with, is how the concern over one particular part of the United Kingdom, that is Ireland, affects the uh, remit of welfare reform after 1906. It's a rarely noted point, but Ireland is excluded from most of the liberal welfare reforms that are passed after 1906. Uh, It is not properly included in the National Insurance Act straight away. Uh, It is not included in the town and uh, um, housing planning uh, act. Uh, And it is only included in some of the other measures, such as free school meals, um, uh, later on, just before the First World War. The one part of the liberal reforms where Ireland is fundamentally included is the Old Age Pensions Act. And indeed, in Ireland, there's a 98% take-up of the new pensions being offered uh, after uh, on January the 1st, 1909, compared to 45% across the rest of, of Britain. And I think there we see some of the economic consequences of including a poorer economy in a welfare model which is to be financed in the way in which the Liberals uh, intend. And I think, again, there are lessons there being learned from what has gone wrong as the British government sees it in, some of the, uh, in the Irish economy and some of the other colonial economies of the late, later 19th century. Let me draw my thoughts towards a, a conclusion. I'm making a couple of sets of arguments, and I'm still looking for ways to bring them all together. The first argument is that two or three decades before the onset of what became known as state socialism or collectivism on the British mainland, there were aspects of that kind of state intervention already at work in some of these colonial uh, economies. In particular, the public finance, which is brought in to support measures of infrastructural improvement, railway development, uh, supporting declining Uh, industries, supporting uh, declining uh, single crop-based agriculture uh, is increasingly looked upon as very risky and certainly not to be applied back in Britain itself, which then opens up another debate about how do you pay for welfare if you're not going to use that particular system 
of public finance. A second point I'm making is that this is a generation of social reformers and civil servants and politicians who are particularly uh, acutely concerned about the relationship between what happens in the empire and what happens back, back in Britain. And although a lot of those connections are, are implicit and uh, unspoken, I think it's quite hard to understand the ways in which decisions and arguments are made without looking at those, those sorts of connections. This was a particularly well-travelled uh, generation. Uh, it was a, a, a generation of reformers who were connected by family uh, to, to, to the empire, and they were particularly zealous in their commitment to their ideas and seeing them implemented. It goes without saying that Albert Dicey knew them all well, and that's probably why he was so alarmed. Thank you all very much for being such an attentive audience. <laughs>